Tonight we'll be finishing up the third chapter of the book of Galatians. I'll be preaching specifically in verses 27 through 29. It, it definitely feels like time is going by very quickly. Uh, we're already halfway through uh, the book of Galatians, which uh, is a little bit sad. I, I love the book of Galatians. Uh, in fact, I had talked to somebody just a few weeks ago. They said, I, I love the book of Galatians. And I said, why? And they said, because there's gospel on every page. Um, and I, I couldn't agree more. And so uh, tonight I'll, I'll be preaching, like I said, in verse 27. I'll read it uh, through the end of the chapter, and then I will pray for the Lord to bless us. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word is precious. It shows us the way to eternal life. It points us clearly to Jesus, our only Savior, the only one we can put our hope into. It gives us the story of your salvation that we may trust in you entirely. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would bless us this evening, that we would receive your word with all joy, that your word and your spirit and your gospel would fill us up with joy unlike anything else that this world could ever offer. We do pray this in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, I'm still fairly young, but I've been in the church long enough to know that churches, when they talk about themselves and when they talk about what they want to be, they sort of use a lot of the same buzzwords. And these aren't bad things. They say, we want to be a church or we are a church of authentic fellowship. Or they say, our church family is a place of sincere relationships. Or they say, come and join us. We are a place of robust community. And they use all sorts of words like this. Like I said, they're not necessarily bad. And they give off the idea of a strong sense of unity in the church. And after all, everyone likes the idea of unity. Because it shows us that we're a part of something bigger than ourselves. Everybody likes it. And so aiming after the completion of those buzzwords, churches will devise all sorts of plans. They will come up with all sorts of programs and, and potlucks and fellowship groups and community groups and get-togethers and all sorts of things with the intention and the aim of building unity, of creating it, of establishing it here and making the church really a place of authentic fellowship and so on. And that's well and good. I think that's perfectly fine. Don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying we should not have those things, but I do think there is a subtle danger in that mentality. That is to say, we can begin to think that unity rests on us, that it's our job as the church to make unity that wasn't there before, to, to organize groups of people in such a way as to uh, flourish and make a unity or build a unity that we did not have. And so tonight, I want us to remember 
that we have unity already in Christ. Jesus himself has already given us unity. In fact, he has bought it for us with his very life. We start with unity. It's his gift. And our job as the church is to manifest that unity, is to express that unity, is to do all we can to see the objective unity that Christ has bought and to see it brought among us and manifested. And so before we can ever talk about being a church of authentic fellowship or robust community or anything like this, we have to be a people who knows deeply what Christ has done to give us unity in the first place. Well, how has Christ given us unity? I think the text gives us three uh, really incredible, um, incredible answers. Three points tonight. First, Christ united us to himself. He united us, we might say, to himself. Secondly, Christ has broken down worldly divisions. He has broken them down. And thirdly, Christ has made us co-heirs. He has made us heirs together of promise. Let's start with our first point. Christ has united us to himself. Let me just point you back to the text in verse 27. Look at what it says. Paul writes, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And so Paul first begins with the unity we have with Jesus himself. That is to say that we individually, but more importantly, we together have a unity with the person, with Jesus himself. And we always need to remember whenever we're talking about our unity with Christ, that this is a vital doctrine to the gospel. It's really at the very heart of the gospel. Our union with Christ, uh, sometimes we say, is the very source of all of our blessings. That is to say that everything that the Father gives to you, every good and perfect gift from above, how do we receive them? We receive them by virtue of being connected to God's beloved and perfect Son. This is really at the heart of the gospel. And Paul, in this verse, speaking of our union with Christ, he gives us two pictures, really dynamic pictures of what our union with Christ looks like. First, the picture of baptism. And secondly, the picture of clothing. He says, put on Christ, or you have put on Christ. Let's start with the first picture there. It's the picture of baptism. And I should say, just by way of introduction here, Paul is not really giving a a long theology of baptism here. He's not really giving instructions to the church about how to baptize and who to baptize and when to baptize and all of that. And he's also not really even talking about the physical act of baptism here per se. He's not even talking about the, the physical act of the sprinkling of water. No, what he is addressing is the spiritual reality behind baptism. Uh, We in the Reformed faith, we talk about sacraments and including baptism as being a sign and a seal. A sign and a seal that is of the covenant that we are in with God. And, And baptism is absolutely no different. It's a sign and a seal of God's covenant promises. 
Well, what is the promise that baptism points to? What's the spiritual reality behind it? Well, I could simply summarize it like this. What is promised is that those with faith, those who are united to Christ by faith, are cleansed. They are washed. They are redeemed from their sin. Well, how does that happen? How does baptism point to that reality? Well, I think Paul helps us in another place of Scripture in Romans chapter 6. He says these words in Romans 6, 3. He says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? And that, for many Christians, sounds very strange. Paul is saying that there is a sense in which we as believers united to Christ share in his death, participate in the death of Christ. Whereas Christ dies a sacrificial death on the cross, how do we die in Christ? Well, the simple answer, the short answer is, is we die to ourselves. We die to our old selves. We die to the old man. We die to our old and sinful nature. Even Paul himself has affirmed this already in the book of Galatians. Recall just last chapter where Paul said uh, one of the most magnificent verses really in all of Scripture in Galatians 2.20. He said, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. We've died to ourselves when we were dead in Christ. And so baptism first points to that. We've been united to Christ in his death, but that's not all. We've also been united to Christ in his life. You could go back to Romans 6 and look just a little bit ahead, and you see another equally incredible truth described there. Romans 6, 5 says, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And so our union means that we have died, but now we live In Christ. Our life, you might say, is upheld by Christ and by Christ's power, so that as long as Christ our Savior lives, we live with Christ. He is our source of eternal and abundant life. Our our life is hidden in Christ, Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 3. And of course, this isn't something that's just true of you particularly. Notice the emphasis of what Paul's saying. It's not just you, but it's we. If you you can kind of get into the Greek a little bit, he says, y'all were baptized. He says, you all have been baptized together as a people, baptized into Jesus Christ, baptized into him by faith. And what he's saying there is he's simply reminding themselves, uh, them of this amazing truth. That because they have been spiritually joined to Christ, he has utterly transformed them. Even if they don't feel like it, even if they can't see it all the time, uh, shown in their life day to day, he's saying this is absolutely fundamentally true. You are a new person united to Jesus Christ. You're new people. Your life follows his. You died with Christ. You now live with Christ. And yes, you will one day be glorified all of you, with Christ Jesus, who you believe in. You've been baptized into Christ. But then he's got even another picture for our union with Christ. He doesn't just stop at the baptism. He goes on. He says, you who have put on Christ, or you, you have, who have been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ, is what he says. And he uses this 
uh, almost clothing illustration that you've been covered by Jesus Christ. And you might kind of put it this way. If our baptism into Christ is, is a one-time thing, we, we died with Christ and now live with Christ, well, putting on Christ is always presented in Scripture as something that happens again and again. We continue to put on Christ. It is an ongoing reality. For example, in Colossians 3, uh, verse 10, he says, You have put on the new self, which is being renewed. Which is being renewed. That is to say that each and every day, what is the Christian doing? He's putting on Christ. He's putting on the attributes of Christ. He's putting on the character of Christ, imitating him in in all the ways that he is like. Maybe you've heard the illustration uh, as sometimes they use in the workplace. They say, don't dress for the job you have, right? What do they say instead? Dress for the job that you want. Dress like you're going to have that promotion. Dress like you would if you had that better position. And it's a very similar reality. We are putting on Christ because we want to be like him. We want to to imitate Christ in every way. But this putting on, we could even kind of take it a step further. We could say it is a conformity to Jesus Christ. What What is the church built up of people doing? They're conforming to Jesus Christ. And this conformity is absolutely vital for our union with Christ. Do you know why, or what? maybe I can put it this way, do you know what is a major source of conflict in virtually every relationship? It's when we expect others to conform to us. Every time we enter into a relationship, whether it be a marriage relationship or even a friendship, or yes, even here in the church, entering into a relationship with God's people, we all come in with our own set of priorities, our own set of expectations, our own set of opinions, our own set of desires, our own set of goals. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, yeah, of course, what's the big problem? The problem is, is so does the person to the left and to the right of you. We all have them. And the natural response in any relationship, marriage, friendship, or church, whatever it may be, is there's going to be some friction, isn't there? There's going to be some head-butting. There's going to be a little bit of arguing, a little bit of friction, maybe some stubbornness. We all easily fall into the attitude that one of us is going to have to give. That someone is going to have to win. Somebody's going to have to lose. Maybe you've even thought about that in your own marriage. Right? Don't, don't say it. But maybe you've even kind of thought, you know, my marriage would really be a lot better, maybe even perfect, if my spouse just agreed with me, had my priorities, understood where I'm really coming from, understood where I'm really trying to get And we sort of tell ourselves this in our own mind. Don't answer, but how well is that working out for us? (laughs) Well, what is the hope? If that's causing friction in every relationship, what's the hope? Well, the church has something totally unique. We put on Christ, we conform to Christ, do we not? We're conforming to him, we're replacing ourselves, we're dying to ourselves. 
We're giving up our own priorities. We're giving up our own goals. We're giving up our own uh, opinions, our own methods, our own everything. And we're saying replace it with Christ. We want what he wants. I love Philippians 2. It's it's a wonderful chapter on unity. Uh, He says this in Philippians 2. He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In other words, Paul says, what's the, what's the true way to unity? You need to be of one mind. And we all immediately begin to think, well, which one of us is it going to be? Is it going to be my mind? I hope it's my mind. No, the answer is it's Christ's mind. We are given the very mind of Christ through the Spirit who works in us. And this way of conformity, this putting on of Christ that we are doing in the church each and every day, this is the only way to true unity, being of one mind. And we have the very mind of Christ. We're baptized into him, and we put him on daily. Secondly, Christ has broken down hostile divisions. He's he's broken down these hostile divisions. Look with me at verse 28. He says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one and Christ. Admittedly, this is uh, not the easiest verse on on its surface. Um, What exactly is being taught here? What is Paul getting at? It almost seems like he's saying these categories, these distinctions are gone away with. That they no longer exist. That when you come into the church, you cease to be a male. Or you cease to be female. Or you cease to be rich or poor. When you come into the church, all of your ethnic uh, uh, qualities, all of your cultural qualities, all those things that have shaped you, those just sort of go away. They become obliterated. In Christ. And of course, there are a lot of people who have uh, tried to abuse this text and tried to use this text to say something very similar to that. There are some who use this text to say, well, Paul is telling us that we should have no gender roles in the church. There should be no uh, gender roles or gender distinctions in the church. Some have tried to use this to say that this means that ethnic distinctions and cultural uh, ideas and cultural shapings, those, those don't matter at all. Once we come into Christ. Those are meaningless categories at this point. But that's not what Paul is doing here. Paul is not saying we cease to be those things. But rather what he's doing here is he's telling us that we have a fundamental and perfect new identity in Christ. He's saying together we are children. Together what is most important about you now is that you're in Christ In other words, people can't even know who you are if they don't know that's a son or daughter of God. That's the most important thing about us. And this identity is fundamental to who we are. It doesn't obliterate those other distinctions such as gender and and class and ethnicity. But, But here is the kicker. It does overshadow them. It does, in a sense, push them to the background Make them not as important as we once thought that they were. It makes Christ the the all-important thing about him. They move to the background. And you got to give it to Paul. He he goes for the three most 
divisive distinctions he could possibly name in all of history, right? He, he talks about gender and ethnicity and wealth status or, or social status, slave and, and free. And just think about it. Aren't those the most divisive categories the world has ever, ever seen? Just think about uh, the history that you know. How many wars have been fought directly on ethnic line? My country against yours. My people versus yours. Think about the greatest atrocities ever committed in this world. They generally fall on ethnic lines, do they not? Or consider, for example, uh, the, the division of social class. How many social movements, not just in our nation, but, but of all history, have pitted different social groups and different uh, wealth groups against one another? Right? The rich must oppress the poor. The rich must keep the poor in their place. We must have always a, a clear distinction between the two. Or, on the flip side, you've seen different movements that say the exact opposite. The poor must rise up. They must take out their oppressors and so on and so forth, even by violent means. Or consider male and female. How many, how many marriages fall apart? How many marriages fall apart for Really, reasons that male and female just seem to kind of butt heads all the time. I was uh, talking one time with a man that I didn't know too well. I'd just met him uh, the, the one time, and he was telling me about himself and, and how he had been divorced a couple of times, I, I think three. And afterward, after telling me this, he, he, he looked me in, in the eye and he said, you know, you just can't trust women. Um, so you, almost like an older man to a younger man, and just... It's best just to not trust them. Uh, and, and funny enough, he said that while my wife was right beside me. Um, and so I imagine she was looking eagerly to see what I was going to say. Um, if that ever happens to you, the, the, the right answer is, is really not to engage, but to simply say, well, if you're right, then my wife is the one exception. That's, just leave it at that. Um, but these three divisions, they are historically the most divisive. We, we know this in our own lives. We know this in history. We know this in our own culture. They've devastated the world, have they not? But what is, what is Paul saying about Jesus? He has plucked and picked and taken from every group, every kind, every category, every distinction, and he has brought them together. And he said, you are now under my banner. You are now in my kingdom. You are now in my family. We're under his banner. So that first and foremost, we're not defined by those old divisions. We are now first and foremost Christians. Our allegiance is now to Christ. Our loyalty is now to Christ's people above all else. And how different is this from the way that the world thinks? This is almost something that the world doesn't understand about the church. They can't understand it. You see, the world thinks Really, in groupthink, do they not? They say, well, your interests must lie with your group, whether it's male or female. Your priorities are certainly with whatever team you're playing on. And, and certainly that's the team, that's the group you're trying to lift up, is it not? And that's how the world thinks. They assume that we're all playing for teams. But that isn't how Christ's kingdom operates. No, he tells us he has removed the dividing wall of hostility. Ephesians. He's made us one in his church. He's united us powerfully by his blood and by his spirit. And so the church is not a, not a, a collection of competing interest groups, all vying for power and attention. No, we're, we're actually one. We're actually united in Christ. 
But what does this mean for us? Just a couple of applications for the second point. First, this means that there's to be no hostility in the church along these old lines. There is to be no prejudice, no bias, no favoritism, no partiality, because our God is not a God of partiality, James tells us. No, our God is a God of free and unbounded grace, and he gives it to all who confess his name. There is simply no room for that kind of attitude in the church. Also, it means that in the church there is no high and low. Uh, Yes, there is distinction in role. Yes, there's distinction in responsibility. Some are arms, some are legs, some are are, uh, the nose and the ear, you might say. But that doesn't mean that they are different. There are different classes in the church. No, we are one body together. And as Paul reminds us in the book of 1 Corinthians, we desperately need one another. We desperately need one another. I need you and you need me. And you need one another all of the time in the body. That's how Christ has set it up. But a second application from this, and this one's a little bit more nuanced. When Christ has done this, united the church, he has himself made a new distinction. He has torn apart old distinctions, and he has himself made a new distinction. Well, what is that distinction? It is the distinction between the sheep and the goats. Christ has marked out his people from the world. He himself has marked the division. And if you follow that line of division, it cuts through every other group. It cuts right between every other distinction. It cuts between ethnicity and family and class and gender. And the result is that people will be divided over who Christ is and whether or not they love Christ. Uh, Jesus himself says sometimes quite shocking things to us. Uh, He says in Luke chapter 12, for example, he says, do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? And we think, of course, well, yeah, you're the king of peace. You're the prince of peace. He says, no, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother. Christ is saying, I'm going to make my own line of division. I am going to cut through. And that's a painful thing for us people. That's a painful reality to see. You see, some Christians do, in fact, live in nations where they believe the gospel, but very, very few people in their own nation believe it. And rightfully and understandably, they yearn for their own people to to confess the name of Jesus Christ. And it's it's heartbreaking to see those you share familial ties with and and blood ties with to not believe the gospel. I think even in America, the church is rightfully lamenting the fact that, that our nation seems to be going away from the gospel. That should bring us sadness, should it not? Or you might think about spouses who for years perhaps pray for their unbelieving spouse and they, they yearn, they hope, and they lift up prayers that their spouse would know Christ too, right? Christ has made that division, and it's a painful one. Or, of course, that reality is true with, with children as well. There are, there are mothers and fathers who know the pain of lost children. Maybe you've even experienced this for yourself and your own family. I know it's, it's true in my family. I know what it's like to, to look at your own family and think, I have more in common with, with my church family than I do with my own brothers and sisters. That's painful. 
Well, what's the hope for us? Well, the hope is this. As Christ divides, he also unites, does he not? He divides and he unites. He gives, he takes, and he gives away. Christ gives us, as we see here, a unity that is far more precious than any unity we could ever have along these old distinctions. He gives us a unity that is so much more precious. It's an everlasting unity. It's a unity based on worship and based on a a common and shared faith. It's a spiritual unity, isn't it? One that will last forever. And so we see that Christ has indeed set the world on fire. He's, He's flipped it upside down. But he's also building something at the same time. Building something even better. He's getting rid of our hostilities. He's getting rid of our agendas and our priorities. And he's giving us something better. And it's a family that we can call each other mutually the family of God. Brothers and sisters in Christ. Only Jesus can do something this amazing. Thirdly, Christ has made us heirs. Christ has made us heirs. Look with me at verse 29. And if you are Christ, then you are, you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So we've been united to Christ, the person. We've been united to one another. And now, you could say this, we've been united together under a shared story, under a shared um, hope. Um, lately, I've been reading a biography of a, of a theologian uh, by the name of, of Herman Bobbing. And... Uh, in that biography, one of the things I'm learning about his, his culture, which was Dutch culture in the 1800s, is, is that it was common for a, a father of a family toward the end of their life to, to write a biography of himself and of his family. And not to sell it, not to, to make money or profit, but, but it was a, a biography, maybe 20 or 30 or 40 pages long, to hand down to the family. And so in, in Bobbing's own family, he had multiple biographies of, of father and grandfather and great-grandfather, and he knew his own family story. And I think that that kind of struck me because it, it reminded me that people really do thrive when they know who they belong to, when they know a little bit about their, their family line and their, their family story. And this is what God actually gives to us as Christians. He gives you a story of your own. He actually brings you into a story of his own. It's his story of redemptive history. And and if this doesn't sound radical, it should. This was incredibly radical for Paul's day. And this was because for thousands of years, that story of redemptive history was not for you. It was for the Jews. It was for the Jewish people. They were the ones who were called and chosen. They were the ones, God said, that were his son. They were his servant. God had given them the law in the temple and his covenant promises. And so all of the great blessings were reserved for an ethnic people, were they not? Paul himself even affirms this. He says in Romans 3, what advantage has the Jew? Well, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. And that dynamic was, was causing some, ten, some tension, some confusion in Paul's day, that ever since the death and resurrection of Christ, the, the floodgates had been opened up. The gospel now went out to the nations. It went to the ends of the earth. People were now brought in in mass numbers, people of every nation and tongue and people and tribe. And some in the church really failed to see how extensive this, this bringing in was. There was all sorts of tension 
that God had actually surprisingly made the Jew and the Gentile equal in blessing. And that, that blew their minds. There were many who could not accept that. There were many who simply could not understand that. It was, it was mind-blowing. Ephesians 2, Paul talks about this. And he says this. He says to the, to the Gentiles, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. In fact, it was so surprising, the Gentile inclusion, that Paul actually calls it the mystery of the gospel. Calls it a great mystery. In Ephesians 3, he says, This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This was groundbreaking. The Gentiles were in. They were co-heirs. They were fellow heirs even with Abraham. By their faith, they had been joined to the one people of God, and they had become heirs according to promise. Now, what does that mean for us? We're, We're heirs of Abraham. We're heirs of the promise. Well, it means that the hope that Abraham had becomes our hope. He could be justified by faith alone, by his God. And so can you. By faith in him, he can justify you. Abraham longed to see the the blessings of God come, and, and we share in that expectation. We long to see the fullness of God's promises made to us. Abraham looked eagerly, waiting for Christ, and so do we. Now, not in the same way. Abraham looked for his first coming, and we saw that in all of its glory, but we also look forward to Christ. And what's he going to do? He's going to accomplish the same promises he made to Abraham so many thousands of years ago. We wait just like him. As a people, we all share a hope in the same person. We all eagerly wait for that same person. We all long with expectation for the Son of God. And there's few things in this world that can unite people like a shared hope. Have you noticed that? There's few things at all powerful enough to bring people together than a shared hope. People who have a shared hope can band together. They can comfort one another. They can exhort one another. They can look to the future together with eagerness and with hope. Just consider with me briefly uh, the, the, the chapter 11th chapter of Hebrews, the Hall of Faith, for example. Right? It's this great chapter about God's people of old and how they, they longed for the promises of God and they had a faith that pointed them to the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't think it's a coincidence that right after that chapter, chapter 12 opens up with these words. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us run. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. What's Paul simply reminding you of here? You are a part of something so much bigger than yourself. You are a part of God's own story. By faith, these promises are yours. The blessing of God are yours. You are an heir. You are a child together with one another. In other words, heaven itself waits for you. The banquet is being prepared for you. 
The angels are are preparing the feast for you all to gather with Jesus Christ himself, to eat with your Lord and Savior. Do you see how he's given you a shared hope? Do you see the unity that Christ has given to us? He's united us to himself, as we've seen. He's rescued us from sin. He's given us life. We saw, secondly, that he has united us to one another by breaking down every division and giving us a new identity. And he's also given us a shared story, a shared hope. So all that to say, at the beginning of my sermon, I hinted at this. Unity is ours. We have it. It's Christ's gift to us, and it is a precious, precious gift. And so yes, yes to the potlucks, and yes to the community groups, and yes to the get-togethers, and yes to looking forward to being with one another as often as we can and as abundantly as we can, but not because we think we're going to make a unity. No, we already have perfect, everlasting unity together in Christ. Let's pray.